caught between. The border was riddled with snares and traps. There was a Swiss zone, a neutral zone, then a German zone. We edged forward through these different zones. Suddenly, the Germans were shooting at us. We got separated as we dodged and tried to run for cover, and I lost Pivka. I don't know what happened to him, and never saw him again. The next morning, a farmer driving down the road on his wagon gave me a lift to a town called Morteau. From there, I took a train back to Besançon. I walked from the station down to the Doux River, which winds through the city. Then I called on the archbishop again. He recognized me at once. He said, I know where you can smuggle yourself into zone libre, free zone. The border between the two parts of France was not far from Besançon. If you can get to zone libre, you can go on to Lyon. In Lyon, who knows what may happen. South of Besançon, there was a town named Arbois. I was told I would have to cross a railway track to get to the border between the two regions. Many people crossed there, according to the archbishop, because the Germans weren't guarding as closely in that area. On a sunny afternoon at the end of August, I left Besançon by bus on my way to Arbois. Driving through rolling, hilly countryside covered with forests and fields, we passed through villages on the Doux River. As we descended from the mountains into the valleys, a church steeple in the town was conspicuous in the distance. About two hours later, the bus arrived at the outskirts of Arbois. Grapevines covered the hillsides. Then, startled, I noticed that the town was crowded with Germans. Arbois was virtually an encampment of the German army. Apparently, the Germans had just recently, perhaps even just that day it seemed, begun to plug the hole in the dam to stop the exodus of French people from zone occupée, occupied zone. The archbishop hadn't known about this development. The bus stopped at the terminus. German soldiers were standing watching everyone who exited. I decided that I couldn't walk out the front door. Instead, I opened a window and jumped out the other side of the bus. I hurried away from the bus and disappeared from the depot as fast as I could. I was in a dangerous position. The whole place was full of Germans, and they were patrolling the streets and squares and standing at every corner. It was impossible to avoid them. I managed to slip into a church near the city hall in the center of Arbois to talk to the priest. I said to him, Can you help me? I have to cross over to the other side. Oh, he lamented. Vous êtes malchanceux. Vous êtes malchanceux. You're an unlucky one. You're an unlucky one. He continued, You have come to the worst spot in France. You won't find a crack in that line now. The Germans have sealed it tight. There's no way to get across. He gave me no hope and no help. He took me up to his rooms under the roof of a tall building behind the church and pointed down. You see? That's the jail. It's full of refugees. They were all caught here. I looked down at a courtyard enclosed by high walls. I had to flee from this area. I thought I'd be arrested right there. He was so terrified just having me there that I feared he'd turn me in himself. I said to him, just tell me which way I should go. He answered, you see out that way? There is a railway track beyond there. He pointed toward the outskirts of the town. There was a railway station a bit of a distance away that we couldn't see from where we were where a track ran behind at the edge of open fields. There were hills and a forest beyond in the near and far distance. He declared, you have to cross that track to head toward the Zone Libre. Go that way. 
I thought that it didn't look very far at all, perhaps several hundred meters away. German soldiers were patrolling the track. I would try to cross early in the morning, figuring that there wouldn't be many guards on duty then. I skittered through the town toward the railway station and stole into a garden nearby. Sunflowers and other tall plants with large leaves were growing in the garden. I crouched among them and lay down to sleep. During the night, a violent storm blew up. The rain beat down. I tried to shield myself with flowers, but they didn't cover me. The leaves grew heavy with rain, drooped and dripped on me. Soon I was completely drenched. I waited until daylight, then forced myself up. Hurrying from the garden, I made for the railway track. Suddenly, four uniformed Germans were blocking my way with police dogs. They arrested me. I acknowledged that I intended to go to the free zone since I saw no point in denying it. I did not really want to go to the free zone because I sensed that it would not go well for me there either. Maybe this feeling had come over me because the Swiss had driven me out, which I had never expected. I'd been thrown off balance. Then Pifka had vanished. After that, the archbishop and the priest had let me down. Worse still, I had made the same mistake in Arbois, walking around the town that we'd made in Switzerland, walking into La Chaux de Fonds in daytime. I should have tried to leave Arbois during the storm at night. I don't know why I didn't. Waiting until morning had been a serious mistake. After such blunders, shocking turns, and misguidance, I could have lost the strength to survive. I was put in the jail in Arbois. It was a small, old, dilapidated place. As the priest had said, there were lots of others already being held there. The German Geheime Feldpolizei, the Wehrmacht's secret police, came and questioned me. That's when I invented my story. I said I was Belgian, and that the situation in Belgium was tough. I told them my parents were dead, but I had a brother living in Lyon. He had a business selling milk there and needed somebody to deliver it. I was on my way to Lyon to help my brother with his business. That's what I told the German police. They sentenced me to three months in jail for attempting to cross the border. Three months in jail in Arbois. After that, I would be sent back to Belgium to verify my identity card and confirm that I was who I said I was. In jail in Arbois, lice were the biggest problem. The jail was swarming with them. The mattresses were full of them and they spread everywhere. I had never had lice before, but I became infested like everyone else. I had lice in my hair. I can feel them crawling on me. Whenever I touched my hair, I would pull out lice and crack them between my fingers. They pop as their body breaks. They were all over me, even in my armpits and pubic hair. I washed myself scrupulously, but the jail was so full of lice that I couldn't get rid of them. My circumcision made me apprehensive as well. Though other men were circumcised too, not only Jews, I wanted to avoid any suspicion or questions about it, so I tried not to let anyone notice. Some of the prisoners in the Arbois jail were criminals, but everyone there had been arrested for trying to cross into the free zone. When my three-month sentence was over, I started my journey back to Belgium. The transfer was done in stages. I was first sent to Besançon. In Besançon, there's a vast and formidable Maison d'Arrêt, a prison situated on a butte above the old city. It's a classic prison with cell blocks radiating from a central tower and high walls surrounding the complex. Some wings were used by the French. Others were partitioned for use by the Germans. Prisoner transports were assembled there. I spent three weeks in solitary confinement in Besançon, though I don't know why I was suddenly put into solitary. 
Very minimal food was provided in all Gestapo jails, and the food we did receive was all vile. I was handed a hunk of dry bread in the morning and watery soup three times a day. Their bread was baked with sawdust to give it weight, and the soup was a thin broth with a few vegetables floating in it. I was starving all the time, but I would still treasure my hunk of bread for many hours before finally eating it slowly at night. This was the only way I could sleep through the night without being kept awake by hunger. I lost a near-fatal amount of weight at this time. I was weighed in Besançon. I was 92 pounds. Before that, I'd weighed about 135 pounds. For my height of 5 feet 8 inches, I had become extremely thin. From Besançon, I was transferred to the city of Dijon, about 100 kilometers away. As I walked into the jail, an SS man rushed at me, screaming, Zinsiuda? Zinsiuda? Are you a Jew? Are you a Jew? I looked at him in the eye and said, Nine. No. I answered him so coolly that he didn't question or examine me further. The Dijon jail must have been the worst jail in France. It was a gloomy, medieval place. Even though they thought we were Belgian, and so we weren't treated like Jews, which would have been even worse, the guards beat us constantly. After I'd spent a week in that jail, a transport was assembled to send us to Belgium. We were put on an ordinary train in special cars guarded by German soldiers and German police. There was one guard for every two prisoners. Prisoners weren't handcuffed, but a German guard went with us wherever we went, even to the toilet. It was a slow train which made for a long trip. I thought continually about escaping and tried to develop a plan. I thought about making a run for it, but I didn't take the step. A number of times, I thought of leaping from a toilet window or opening a compartment door and jumping out. The Germans were watching so closely that there wasn't much chance of succeeding. We arrived in Lille in the evening and had to change trains for Brussels. We were herded off the train, then led from one platform to another when suddenly a guy who I suspected was Jewish disappeared. I saw him go, but the station was so crowded with people that he vanished into the throng. The Germans couldn't follow and lost him. I told myself, that guy did the right thing. I should do that too. I tried to figure out how to do it, when to do it, but opportunities were limited. When we boarded the train for Brussels, I kept thinking, should I jump? If I went through to Brussels with a false identity card, I was a doomed man. I knew the only chance I had was to escape. For one reason or another, I didn't jump. I didn't run. There were few chances to attempt an escape. But even knowing that sometimes we have to make our own chances, I didn't do anything. We pulled into Brussels and were lugged away to Saint-Gilles prison. It was the worst prison I had been in yet. There were about 3,000 political prisoners incarcerated there, and I could hear continuous barking and screaming. I was locked in a cell and kept there for about a week. I was then summoned for interrogation with some other prisoners. We were led to a large room partitioned into separate cubicles. In each one, an SS man presided at a table. I realized I had to make a good impression to give the appearance that I was telling the truth. A booth became empty. My turn was next. The interrogator in that booth was an older man who looked experienced. I was sure he would quickly see through me, so I held back to try to avoid him. In a moment, another booth was free. The interrogator there was a youth of 18 or 19, and I thrust myself toward him. I told him my story. I had to play a strange game. I purported to be a Belgian, but my name wasn't Walloon, French-Belgian. It was Flemish. 
and I couldn't speak Flemish, which is Belgian-Dutch and somewhat different from the Dutch language spoken in the Netherlands. So I always spoke to the Germans in broken German to forestall their calling an interpreter who would have realized immediately that I wasn't who I said I was. I talked to this young SS man in broken German. I told him about my brother and the milk business in Lyon. Then I watched as he wrote, Der Angeklagte macht einen glaubwürdigen Eindruck. The accused gives the impression that he is telling the truth. After that, I was hurried back to my cell. Again, I sat in jail with filthy conditions. Saint-Gilles was full of lice like the French jails. I thought, I'll never get out of this hole. They would wake us at five o'clock in the morning, and then we did absolutely nothing for the rest of the day. We were given almost nothing to eat. I was dangerously thin, and it surprised me that I didn't catch tuberculosis or some other wasting disease. I had almost given up hope. Prisoners were being shot every night in the courtyard. I could hear the shots and the screams. If the Gestapo discovered that someone was a Jew, they shot the person immediately. I thought, they'll come at any moment. They'll discover I'm a Jew because my identity card is false. How can Wavre confirm that I'm Jan van Capella and that I used to live there? The address probably doesn't even exist, and the name with my personal statistics certainly doesn't exist. One day, about two weeks after I arrived there, the Feldwebel, a sergeant, appeared and shouted, Von Capella! I said to myself, This is it. The day of reckoning. I sat, hesitating. The sergeant snapped. Come out, fast. Everything had to be done in quick time. He ordered, Take your stuff! I said to myself, Oh no. It's over. He shrilled, Why don't you come faster? You're free! I couldn't believe it. Free? How could I be free? Free? I didn't believe him. Impossible. But I couldn't reveal what I thought. Then, the process of freeing me started. It took six hours until I'd gone round to all the different offices and officials to get checked and signed out and released through all those doors, doors, doors. And there I was, one evening at the end of December 1942, a free man in Brussels, a German Jew, via the Netherlands, via Switzerland, via France. I was free in Brussels. I didn't know anyone. I'd never lived in Belgium. A war was on. What was I supposed to do now?